On October 8, 1871, a fire set ablaze in the Windy City. Tall tale has it that Mrs. O'Leary's cow knocked over a lantern, igniting the barn and the rest of the city in flames. The Great Chicago Fire burned for two days, killing 300 people and leaving 100,000 without homes. When the Badger State found out their neighbor was in trouble, they rushed resources and response teams to extinguish the flames. Little did they know there was an even more disastrous fire burning right here at home. The Peshtigo Fire. The news tells you what's happening now. But what about what happened then? Welcome to NBC 15's new podcast, Making Wisconsin a History of the Badger State. I'm Gabriella Rusk. And I'm Charlie Shortino. Together, we'll take you through cultural and historical moments that have shaped our state and who we are. That same October day, 150 years ago, the deadliest fire in the nation hit a then prosperous town 50 miles north of Green Bay. With attention on Chicago, not even the Wisconsin governor heard about the fire in Peshtigo until two days after the fact. But for the citizens of Peshtigo, a nightmare had just erupted at home. The origins of the forgotten fire are not completely known, but they likely began deep in the thickest part of the Wisconsin forest, quickly spreading to the lumber town of Peshtigo. According to the Peshtigo Fire Museum, that day, skies were filled with doom, dark, glowing, and windy. With the embers of small fires lingering from days before, reports say some people felt uneasy about the atmosphere, and some went about their daily lives. Around 10 at night, a distant rumbling became a loud roar. Sheets of flames consumed everything in their sight. As it became increasingly hard to see and breathe, people ran to safety, some turning to the river, wells, or other bodies of water for shelter. Though many were able to stick it out, others died from hypothermia or drowned. The fire spread to 17 neighboring towns, killing every person in one town in all. 1.2 million acres were burned. And an estimated 1,200 to 2,400 lives were lost overall. However, the worst damage was done in Peshtigo itself. 800 people died in the city alone, and it's said that only one building was left standing in all of Peshtigo. The city established a mass grave for 350 unidentified victims. Nearly a decade later, the Peshtigo Fire Museum was established right next door to that grave, honoring the people and the city that eventually rebuilt themselves from the ashes. Later in this episode, we'll hear from Barb Engelbert Chisholm, a Peshtigo Fire reenactor whose ancestors actually survived the fire. Their house, their barn, their crops, their few little implements that they had, everything was gone, so they had to wait and hope that uh, someone was going to help them. So Charlie, let's talk about the background of Peshtigo and what kind of factors contributed to this deadly fire. Well, you know, this is back in the in the 1870s. Now, northern Wisconsin, you know, it was just getting into lumbering at that point, and it, it was said that there were a billion white pine trees in northern Wisconsin, over a million acres of uh, pines that hadn't been harvested, and if you 
kind of go through the mat, that's a thousand per acre. So it was very dense there. Peshtigo was, at least in the 1860s, shortly after the Civil War, was kind of a fledgling lumber town, just kind of getting going. And, you know, if you, if you think about lumbering, I mean, people think about cutting down trees mm -hmm. and then shipping out lumber. Well, the in-between process, that lumber is debarked, debranched, cut, and there's a lot of byproducts left from that old, you know, the branches are left. When you cut wood, there's a lot of sawdust. So there was ton, literally tons and tons of sawdust that had to be taken care of. So they just spread it over the towns. They'd put it on the roads. Yeah. They'd hide it under porches. So there was tinder all over the place. That coupled with the fact that 1871, the summer was extremely dry. There was very little rain through the entire summer over northern Wisconsin, so it was a kind of a tinderbox. They were building railroads at the time to get the lumber out. And ironically, most of the lumber from northern Wisconsin ended up in Chicago. Yeah. So both the Chicago fire and the Peshtigo fire, it was Wisconsin wood being burned because a lot of those houses in, in Chicago you know, being built as rapidly as it did, they, they had a huge thirst for lumber. Sure. And, and most of that came from northern Wisconsin. But anyway, as they were building railroads, they had to clear out these woods. And there were a lot of farmers there, too, that had to clear out land. So the way they did that was they cut down trees, burned stumps, burned branches. And the same with railroads. They'd, they'd have to burn all this stuff out. So there were constantly fires going over northern Wisconsin, and that wasn't just in 1871. I mean, it was, it was a year-round mm -hmm. thing, but it was, it was so dry. So, Charlie, it sounds like the weather on its way was the last piece that was needed to create just this firestorm. What was the atmospheric conditions at the time? What was the region experiencing in terms of days leading up to this event and, and you know, allowing this fire to spread just so rapidly? You know, I guess the best way to describe what happened weather-wise, there are these fall type of storms that, that developed. Now, this was early fall. This was October 8th. And these storms will develop to the southwest and move northward, typically across Minnesota and then out over Lake Superior, kind of missing Wisconsin to the west. But they generate huge amounts of wind. And it was one of those types of storms, an early season one that went through. The temperatures were in the 80s out ahead of it, but once the storm moved through, the high temperatures were only in the 50s. So it was a pretty strong system that, that moved through. And the wind did kick up. And when you get big fires like that, not only meteorologically do you get wind, atmospherically get wind, but the fire can also generate wind itself. It is consuming so much oxygen, it just yeah. sucks air in. Um, from all sides and generates its own wind. And uh, in Peshtigo, there were descriptions of the fire so large and pulling in so much wind, the wind was in excess of 100 miles per hour. Now, the weather storm did not generate that type of wind. That's not really possible. But the weather storm combined with the fire sucking in air created very strong winds. And people described it as a tornado of fire, a firestorm that kind of went through that area. You know, as we look at the death toll and see just the surprising number of people who, who died 150 years ago, it's miraculous to think there were people that were able to escape these flames. I sat down with Barb Engelbert Chisholm, and her relatives did survive, 
and gave her an understanding all these years later of just how the people of Peshtigo fought for their lives. You're a Peshtigo fire reenactor, is that right? Yes, I am. I'm a fifth generation Belgian immigrants, and uh, my great-grandmother and great-grandfather and the rest of my family, too, I believe, we all they all survived uh, the Peshtigo fire, but I do the reenactment of my great-grandmother and great-grandfather who lived on the homestead that I grew up on. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I know you do this at the museum, but I guess for those mm-hmm. of us who haven't gotten to visit Peshtigo, um, you know, tell us the story of your family. What what did you hear over time? What have the memories that have been shared with you? There were two fires simultaneously, along with the Chicago fire on the same day. They both, one went up the Peshtigo side and the other went up the side of um, Southern Door, mm. which is on, on the Door County side. Yeah. I'm a survivor from someone on the Southern Door side. And our side, you don't hear that much about because there wasn't any large, larger city, so to speak. Peshtigo was, it was a thriving town at the time of the fire. And so you hear more about that side. According to the stories that was passed down to us, my great-grandfather and great-grandmother had cleared their land. Emerence had just given birth to their first son, Eugene. And they had been watching the fire. See, these fires were burning for months, actually, before this big fire because of human carelessness. It was uh, people clearing the land. And this is on both sides, people clearing the land, not paying attention to their fires once they lit them. And because of the extreme dryness, there was not any rain or snow of any significant amount for almost a year. And so the swamps were even so dry that you could walk across the swamps and not get your feet wet. Wow. And so it was a catastrophe waiting to happen. A wind came up from the south and it ignited all of these small fires together to become one gigantic firestorm. Being in this was like being on the end of a blowtorch. It was so hot. So um, my great-grandmother and great-grandfather had been battling these fires for for months, but this particular one and this particular day, it was beyond um, anything that they could battle on their own because what, what did you have back then? You had buckets of water. That's that's about it. And um, there was a shallow well dug on our homestead. In fact, it was still there when I grew up. Uh, that they went down this well when the fire came. And according to what they said, it was just like a scene from hell because the animals were coming out of their out of the woods into their clearing, and it was just un, unheard of it to that point how bad it was. They went down into the well and covered themselves up with this blanket and had the fire go on either side of them and proceed onward. But they said they could hear it approaching. It was like you hear now, the roar of a train, and it kept getting hotter and hotter. And in the morning, they crawled out of this makeshift well. Now, they were lucky because other people that went down into the well, into wells on their homesteads, they either burned or um, the fire needed oxygen, and so it sucked the oxygen right out of the 
well and they basically suffocated. They weren't necessarily burned, but they suffocated. And so the, they came out of the well and looked around and everything, their house, their barn, their crops, their oxen, their few little implements that they had, everything was gone. So they had to wait and hope that uh, someone was going to help them. You know, it wasn't like today that you could call the Salvation Army or the Red Cross. They had they had no idea. And from what I was told, they went into the gardens that they had planted and uh, survived on the potatoes and the carrots and whatever was in because they just had the clothes on their backs, and that was about it. Yeah, so I'm sure that you have pictured that moment of them stepping out of the well and into what was just a different world you know when you put yourself in the mind of your ancestors you know what is it that you're picturing can you um, imagine now just even just thinking about it from from now standpoint every place that they turned to there was a wall of fire it their roads were corduroy roads basically which were logs stacks stacked side by side those were all burned and they couldn't they couldn't run in any any direction i can't imagine how terrifying that must have been and there there they were they I, they had nowhere to go um apparently a preacher had been through the area and was preaching that the end of the world was coming and it was going to be by fire so some people didn't even bother trying to save themselves they just figured this is the lord's way and just knelt down and accepted their fate so wow. it 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 was uh, i i get i really every time i do this i get really into it because it was such a monumental time in this area it changed the way people earned a living they no longer could depend upon um shingles and wood and so forth for mm. their second job besides trying to farm from wood they went to dairy farming because they looked around and they saw all these big trees that were in their way were burned and so they had more land to plant and also changed the way they built their homes. They decided that they were going to build their houses of uh, red brick. And if you come in this area, in the Southern Door area, there are lots of red brick homes. I'll have to look for it next time I go up there. (laughs) You know, I guess kind of turning to, obviously, you heard these stories when you were young. And, Mm -hmm. you know, what was your own education on this? I mean, what do you have a memory of the first time your great-grandma maybe told you this story? Or, um, you know, how did you get to learn these stories? Was it just through sitting down and and listening to your your family members tell them? Well, it wasn't my great-grandmother. They had had died by the time I was on the farm. But my grandfather lived with us. And there was nothing more pleasurable than mom and dad would go out for the evening and grandpa would quote-unquote babysit and I wish like heck I could remember all the stories he told because he, he we would sit entranced for hours while Grandpa told about the old times. And some of the old times was about what he knew about the vegetable fire. Yeah. One of the things that our, our team here was talking about is just the death toll is so wide. It's, you know, 1,200 to 2,400. You know, why is there not that more solidified number? Is it because it was just so hard to to gauge how many people were affected by this? Uh, Yes. And on our side, there was about anywhere 
guesses between two two to four hundred. It was less populated, and lots of the people in that era, and I'm sure it happened on the Peshko side also, was people would just come from the old country and walk into the forest and squat on a piece of land and start developing it, not really registering anywhere. And so they really were not on anybody's books, in other words. I mean, maybe the neighbor knew that someone was there, but not anybody else. And so it was said years afterwards, you you could go walk into the woods and you would find remains of someone that tried to escape the fire and didn't do it. Yeah. You know, kind of as you take on your, your grandfather's role and you encourage people to sit around and you tell them about the old times and you tell them about this tale, you know, you know, why do you do this? What's your your reason to, to continue telling this story? I am very interested in history. My grandfather was interested in history telling us and my dad was. I, I just enjoy it. It makes me feel closer to my family and it, it gives me the the thought of how much they went through. I mean, it was uh, not just with the Peshtigo fire, but even just coming here, what they gave up in Belgium, what they had to start here, clearing all that land. But you have to think of how far everyone's come since then, how uh, how much they have persevered and kept on having a very good life. Barb, thank you again for your time, and um, I can't wait the next trip I take. I think I, I usually try and go up there in December, so um, I will have to keep my eyes peeled for the red clay. Oh, <laughs> oh yes, yes, do do that. You'll, you'll see them. Uh, and I'll think of you. Uh... 150 years ago, they didn't have fire investigations. I mean, there's no clear answer for what started this, but... There are several theories, Charlie, so walk us through some of those. There are. The, the first and most believable one is that a pig kicked over a lantern in a barn. Not a cow. Not a cow. No, actually, uh, there, there are three kind of theories that are, that are floating around, some of them a little more outrageous than others. And we'll start with the most outrageous and work our way to probably the most accepted. Uh, some people have a theory that a comet started the fire, the remnants of a comet. There was some comet during that time in, the, in 1871 that was moving through and it kind of split. And some people believe remnants of that comet made their way down to Earth and ignited this fire. I, I don't believe that a meteorite has ever caused a fire. Yeah. That it at least has been proven that a meteorite has ever caused a fire. So that one's a little bit outrageous. A little more plausible would be a lightning strike. Uh, it had been very dry, but with a storm off to the west, in theory, there could have been some rain, although nobody reported any rain at they the time. They did say it was dark and gloomy, though. It was dark and gloomy, but that was because of smoke, mm. because of the fires that were burning off to the west. Uh, there, there were reports that morning you couldn't see across the street in Peshtigo. There was so much smoke. And that was not only that morning, but for the weeks prior to that. And people 
would have to cover their mouths with handkerchiefs mm. when they walked outside because the smoke was so thick in the weeks leading up to the fire. But there was no rain reported in the days leading up to it. So uh, I don't know, lightning, I suppose, is not totally outrageous, but I, I think the more believable theories are that due to the clearing of fields, clearing of paths for railways, a lot of trees and lumber and byproducts were being burned and there were fires smoldering off to the west, some of them out of control, others in control. But when the wind picks up and you get 60, 70 mile per hour winds fanning those smoldering flames, the theory is that they burst yeah. in, into a much bigger fire and then kind of combined and moved north eastward toward Peshtigo and Marinette and Menominee. So this was, this was back in 1871, and obviously things were a little different in 1871. You know, Chicago burned in a matter of two or three mm -hmm. days. Peshtigo was a one-day fire that moved through and, and burned all that, and it happened very quickly. But the belief is that that could never happen again. So while this fire in Peshtigo isn't as well known as the Chicago fire, you know, both of these fires changed the way that people saw fires and it served as a wake-up call to the nation about, you know, use of land and then also fire codes and, and different fire departments and response times. So all those things were spurred following these, these two great fires, even though the Chicago one might, might be a little more well-known. Um, the other thing too, Charlie, is, I mean, you in your weathercasts give alert days, hey, the DNR says this is not a burn day, um, you, you can track the drought. I mean, that has changed too, just being aware of how dry something is over a period of time or, or why you shouldn't be burning in your yard that day. As far as I know, the DNR did not exist back in 1871. Yes. And uh, the techniques that were used back in 1871 would, would not fly in the eyes of the DNR now, the slash and burn type of clearing that took place then. And yeah, they come out with fire reports, burn bans, things like that. But not only that, towns are built differently yeah. now too. Uh, one, you're not building a town in the middle of a wood surrounded by trees because a lot of those mm -hmm. trees have been, have been taken out. But uh, you're also, you know, there are fire codes that you know, construction has to adhere by different materials, fireproof materials uh, that are used to, to build, you know, buildings, homes, businesses, things like that. Yeah, what houses are made of are a lot less flammable now than they were Absolutely. years ago. Absolutely. Drywall is supposedly fire retardant, so it, it takes, you know, a pretty good fire to get drywall burning, so that is the type of thing that, you know, wouldn't allow this type of fire to spread as quickly across Peshtigo or Chicago for that matter either. Yeah, and I think too the technology of being able to tell people when, I mean, we do see California experience wildfires and, and parts of the west area of the country, but people who live in those towns get days and days notice of evacuation or, or things like that. So there is a lot more alert response time than the poor people of Peshtigo had. Plus, Gabriella, all the highly trained and accurate meteorologists out there protecting the world from these big storms. And fires. And fires, yeah. So, the information. I think more importantly, the firefighters. <laughs>
fighting the fires. Yeah. But those brave men and women who yeah. are actually in the field. I'm a frontline weather worker. This fall marks 150 years since the Peshtigo fire, a little piece of Wisconsin history. Charlie, as we mentioned, many people don't know about because of the Chicago fire also marking 150 years this year too. Mm, certainly not many people outside the state of Wisconsin. I hope they're still teaching about it in schools because it is a, a big part of Wisconsin history. We want to give a special thanks to the Peshtigo Fire Museum for their abundance of information about the Great Fire of 1871. Our sister station, WBAY, for their interviews about the disaster, and Barb Engelbert Chisholm for telling us her ancestors' stories. Uh, if you want to get more information on the Peshtigo Fire, I read a book. You should read it, too. It's a good one. Firestorm at Peshtigo, a town, its people, and the deadliest fire in American history. It is by Denise Guess and William Lutz. It talks about the days leading up to the fire and the days after the fire. Thanks for listening to our podcast, Making Wisconsin a History of the Badger State. Look out for upcoming episodes on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Making Wisconsin a History of the Badger State is hosted by Charlie Shortino and me, Gabriella Rusk. It's produced and edited by Vanessa Reza and Keegan Schlosser. It's overseen by Nick Viviani and Jessica Leshesky.